before we uh, dive in, my wife Arlene is here, and people will ask us about our, our first, a lot of people will ask, where do you live? That's one, and then tell us about your family. So we'll clear it up. We live in both Colorado and Florida. I have a ministry called Thrive. Our, our home's in Colorado, but at the same time, we have a home in Orlando. That's where we live most of the time because I'm lead pastor of a church called Northland. And uh, I just started helping them out some with this ministry called Thrive, and I've gotten more and more involved and very, very excited about their, their coming days. So when you hear me talk about Orlando or Colorado, it's because I'm schizophrenic geographically, and that's, that's where we are in terms of our... Our family, Arlene will tell you that uh, she has four boys, but three of them are sons, and then the other one is me, so I wanted to introduce you to them a little bit. The first one is named Stephen. He's our youngest, and Stephen just graduated from Whitworth University a year ago. Spent a year this past year, his first year out of college, uh, volunteering, serving in an orphanage in Bolivia. He just wanted, before he dove into corporate America, he wanted to, to give his life to about 26 little uh, kids that captured his heart. And now he's back in Missoula, Montana, uh, starting to work for a software company up there. Uh, all four of us boys are outdoors guys. So we've done a lot of stuff over the years outdoors and uh, doing a lot of climbing, backpacking, uh, etc. And this is Stephen in Yosemite. And he's doing this. That does not mean loser. It's a thing that it means uh, capital L living. It's what he's doing is holding a book that that's because I'm upset you earlier. Isn't it? Did the sound just go out? Is that all right? What's that? So the table out in the back, if Arlene will be back there some, but you know what, if you can't afford uh, a book or whatever, you go ahead and, go ahead and take a book and we'll, uh, don't worry about it. It's so important from a gospel standpoint, and that's what we're going to unpack in this week. But I wrote that book for my sons as well as for the church. And they knew that. It wasn't, it's dedicated to them, and it wasn't just a last-minute afterthought. Oh, the publisher wants me to, to say, who am I dedicating this to? From the first keystroke, I knew I was writing it for them, as well as for the church, because it's something that was brewing in us in our, our conversations around the campfire over the years and all the different things that they were doing relationally, athletic-wise, service in the community, church, kingdom. And it's understanding that the gospel is an all-of-life endeavor. Ever. And it includes our time. It includes our time in uh, hospitals, and funerals, and boardrooms, around campfires and parties. When we're grieving, when we're crying, it's all of life. Jesus came for the life of the world. He didn't come for our religiosity. He came for our, the restoration of, of our humanity to the glory of God. So we spent a lot of time talking about that, not just in church and not just sitting down, okay, get your Bibles out, guys. It was whether we were sitting around a campfire or hiking. And so he, he sent this uh, to, we have a family text going on. So he sent this uh, and just to say, hey, guys, here, here I am in Yosemite with that. So his older brother, uh, Joel, who is uh, just a couple of years older than him, saw that and decided um, that he would, let's see here. There we go. Perfect. Um, so Joel is our middle son. Joel went to University of Colorado, majored in business, is working for another software company up in Denver. 
And they, in Colorado, we have a thing called 14ers. He's climbed, a, this is the tallest 14 or 14,000 foot peaks, 53 or 54, depending on your opinion in, in Colorado. And so he signed, signed up and he said, hey, here we go. I'm gonna hold the book up at about 14,449 feet or 48 feet. And just to celebrate that. And then there's the older brother, the oldest brother who does what oldest brothers always do, says, guys, uh, those were all, there we go. That's very nice. Congratulations. But uh, now Andrew packed this. This is Denali. He went to the Air Force Academy, graduated, asked to be stationed for his first post up in Fairbanks, Alaska. And you, you get your top five, you put your top five requests down, and they rate, according to your, your rank in the class, they weight your request. His first one was Turkey. They weren't posting anybody at the, in the Air Force at the Turkey base. And so he got Fairbanks. He was so excited. I said, buddy, you know, like, I, I love encouraging you, but I don't think everybody else requested Fairbanks, but I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad you're up there. So, yeah, this is like seven hours north of Anchorage. But the reason he wanted to go there is because of Denali. Uh, we've been climbing all our lives. This is one of the great peaks of the world. He trained for a year. I uh, did a two-week training expedition, and then uh, the following June, he climbed it. They weigh ounces. It's a two-week expedition, and I was shocked when he sent this to me, and uh, that he actually carried a book. They used, he said, we, we unpacked it some in the tent with a couple of others. One of the guys that uh, they, they would be crammed in a tent during blizzards, he says, uh, one of them wasn't a believer, and he was a captive audience. We could actually... But it was more him listening than talking and talking at him. And we'll talk a little bit about that as well. But um, he said, yeah, I wanted to send that to you. Surprise me with this. He said, I just wanted to honor you. And I said, yeah, thank you. And I, I really did appreciate it. But I think a lot of it had to do with his younger brother saying, 14,040 feet, Joel, that's awesome. But let me up that by a mile to 20,000 feet and then go from there. So... Um, He's carried it around the world. He just got back from Afghanistan, sent that to me. And then uh, this is the entire family. We have a daughter-in-law, Mary Rachel, who's married to our middle son, Joel. So I now have about 45 slides of our last vacation that I want to share with you. <laughs> just kidding. So let's spend some time. I am so looking forward to being with you guys this week. And I... Uh, I want to acknowledge along with you that I'm listening with you. And so let's acknowledge who the real teacher is this week. It's not me. So let's talk to him for a minute, okay? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for every man, woman, boy, or girl here. And no matter what circumstances got them into this room right now, I thank you that they are here because you want them here, and that includes me. You've got an agenda. It's a gospel agenda, a good news agenda, an evangelion agenda. But it's agenda far bigger than anything we could ever ask or imagine. I pray that I'll listen well along with them. that we'll listen to your word. Not just as a religious handbook, not just as a doctrinal textbook, 
but as your God breathed, authoritative and loving and life-giving instruction. I pray that you'll elevate our vision for the gospel, that it, it's far bigger and more encompassing in its agenda, that you came, Jesus, not to start a religion, not to give us something, not to start holidays, not to give us something to do on a Sunday morning, but you came for the life of the world, for the Father's glory. I obviously don't know what's going on in each individual life here. Some are riding high in one of the best seasons of their journeys. Others are underneath a heap. Maybe it's a marriage that's straining in a frightening way because it's the first time. Maybe it's a health scare or a health reality. Maybe it's some financial, something financial or job or strained relationships with some children, maybe adult children, maybe deep doubts, besetting sins. I cannot address that. Human words cannot address those things. But your word, by your spirit, can. So I entrust these men and women to you. May I say no more, no less than you once said. May I listen along with them. And I pray this in the name of the one who is way and truth, but also life. Amen. Amen. So, a few Christmases ago, I gave myself a, uh, a Christmas present. And let's see here where... There we go. I gave myself a Christmas present, and it was a, um, a flashlight. Now, you might wonder, you might want to ask me, why did you give yourself a flashlight? Thank you for asking. Well, the reason is it's not just any flashlight. It is a very, very powerful flashlight. It's not just any flashlight. It's a dive light. You might say, why did you give yourself a dive light for Christmas? Thanks for asking. Let me explain it to you. So... I was down in Cozumel with a friend of mine doing an advanced, I'm a scuba diver, that's one of, part of the outdoor stuff, makes total sense since I have lived much of my life in Colorado and there's tons of ocean around Colorado as many of you know. But uh, our whole family got certified, uh, but I was the first one to do it. We were down, I was down getting an advanced uh, diver certification. And my friend Rick and I uh, took the evening one time to do an, a, a night dive. I'd never done a night dive before, and I thought, okay, I, I, I want to give that a try. Now, some people will say, well, what's a night dive? Well, there are two things that you really are helpful to understand about a night dive. Number one, it's a dive. And number two, it's at night. There you go. That's all you need to know to understand a night dive. But then people will say, why do you want to do a night dive? And that, it's, a, it's a horrifying thing to some people to think to, to submerge and make their life dependent on sucking air through a hose. It's a whole other thing to do it in the dark. 
And the reason is, especially like in Cozumel, it's one of the largest, second largest reef in the world. And the marine life, it's, it's a thoroughfare. Of, of, of beauty, of marine life. And I, one of the reasons I, I, I love diving is because I'm often seeing things that up until about 100 years ago were reserved for the eyes of God alone, for his glory. And it's, it's majestic, it's beautiful during the day. But that thoroughfare, uh, that thing that's a thoroughfare during the day, at night it becomes rush hour. Things come out that never come out during the day. You, you see stuff that you never see during the day. And uh, so, but the thing you really want is a, a good dive light. And so I went to the dive shop. I had a small one that I used to, to, to look inside crevices and under rocks and so forth during uh, day dives, but I needed a, a night dive uh, flashlight and a dive light. So I went into the dive shop. I wanted to buy one. The guy said, senor, senor, you don't need to buy one. I, we rent them. I said, really, you rent good ones? He said, yeah. I said, show, show them to me. He lined them up. I said, all right, which is the best one? He said, this one. So I got it, turned it on. I said, so these, these batteries are fresh. He said, oh, si, senor. I said, you're sure? He said, si, senor. So um, you just, did you hear, there's a little dramatic music in the background that gives you a little hint. Um, so we took off. We showed up at the dock at dusk, got on board. You always have a dive buddy in a day dive, especially a night dive. There were three other pairs of divers, our dive instructor, and this guy in the dive shop said, now, if something were to happen and the batteries don't work, don't worry, your dive instructor, he will have an extra dive light, so everything will be great. So we get out. We head out to a particular coral reef, and that's a drift dive. Drift dives in the, in, down near Cozumel means that you don't just anchor, go down, swim around, come back up. It is a very fast current. And so you just go down, you submerge, and then you just basically steer yourself as you're being carried at a pretty good clip. Now, during the day, it's really complicated because you're going through a lot of coral. You don't want to touch it. You want to look at the marine life. You want to keep an eye out for your dive instructor as well as your dive buddy. You're doing all of that at night, and it becomes a little bit more involved, but they say it's worth it. So we hopped in. The guy said, see, you know, we got to the point where they're going to drop us off. The boat will drift above, pick you up about 45 minutes later. So he says, seniors, fins, masks on. So we kind of submerged and went down to 53 feet, turned on my dive light, and it was the most amazing, I've been on about 70, I'm guessing, dives by that point, the most amazing dive of my life for 22 minutes. Now, some of you might say, what happened at 22 minutes? <laughs> Glad you asked. So, at 22 minutes, those fresh batteries became not fresh. And within, it started going out, and within probably 35, 45 seconds, I was in total darkness. I mean, I couldn't believe how quickly the uh, dive light went out. So there I am floating along, and I don't know if you've ever noticed, most wetsuits are black. Did you know, you know why they're black? They're, they're black so that you can be camouflaged from your dive buddy when your dive light goes out <laughs> on a night dive. So Rick said, I, uh, here we are going all along. I look over, there's Matt. I'm looking at some other stuff. And then Matt's gone. And again, it, the, the current did not stop at this point. Everything is moving along. I can't see truly. I can't see my hand. You hear that phrase, couldn't see my hand in front of, you, in front of my face. Very rarely is that true. This time it was true. It was a moonless night. So there we are. But I could see Rick and I could see his light. And so I 
fend over. You know, again, we're moving along, but and he's panicking, wondering where's Matt. And I'm all turned around, but I get over to him and grab his leg. Because <laughs> we're moving. So, but it didn't matter. It was already a wetsuit, so everything was fine. And um, some of you got that. Others of you have to think about it for a while. Scared him to death because he's looking in this direction and something grabs and he looks down, his eyes are this big. I motion to him, my dive light's out. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm heading over to get my, you know, that spare dive light. I go over, do the same thing to the, I wasn't trying to scare them. It's just, you're moving along. The only way is to reach out and touch somebody. And so I uh, grabbed him. He turned around, dive master scared to death. I asked him for the extra dive light. Oh, this is all sign language, obviously. And he gives me a sign, a, a dive signal I'd never seen before. And it was, it, it's, it's a signal that means I don't have an extra dive light. That's what this means. You're on your own. I hope you make it back to the boat. Have a great rest of your life. So I head back over to Rick and tell him, no dive light. You and I are best friends from here on out. And I'm, so I drifted right along with him within three or four feet up, down. Again, we're moving at a click pace, keeping our eye on the marine life, on the coral, on uh, one another, and making sure the dive master doesn't leave us. So we're going along. This happened for about five, ten minutes, and I was totally dependent on wherever his light was. And usually I was next to him, sometimes underneath, sometimes over. But one time I was underneath, we're moving along. The, uh, uh, the beam of his light was over my right shoulder and I'm just dependent on it. And then we stop and right there, about nine feet, less than 10 feet in front of me, staring right at me was about a nine or 10 foot shark. That's what I did. And when you do that diving, buoyancy happens. I inhaled almost half my tank of air, which was a good thing because that meant I went up above the shark, which is great. But the sad thing is, is Rick totally forgot about his dive buddy at that point. And so I'm now above the shark. Rick does this that you do at a night dive. Hey, something's interesting here. And uh, the shark is about to eat Matt. And there, there he is. So they all huddle around and I'm up above. Now, it, was, it was a nurse shark we discovered later. But when you're 53 feet down and you don't have a dive light, adjectives don't matter. A shark is a shark. And uh, so I'm there, I'm watching and saying, okay, buoyancy, buoyancy, buoyancy. And then finally, about uh, 30, 40 seconds later, the shark swims away. Now I've got to find Rick. I don't know where he is. And there are, there are all these divers, but I don't know which one is Rick. You guys remember the story, uh, who's my mother? Um, so who's my dive buddy? And I'm walking up and I'm touching all these people, grabbing them. Nope, you're not my dive buddy. <laughs> Finally, I found Rick and, he and he's looking at me again, so stressed. And we both said, this is it. We're done. Uh, this is too stressful. So we, we went up, uh, lit uh, a um, signal to the, the boat, then came over and got us because we were way out. We've, we, we weren't nearly to the point where we were supposed to be. We were waited on the dive master and the rest of the group. He got in the boat and says, Senor, it was a great dive, wasn't it? And we said, no. Um, for 22 minutes it was. I have reflected that very next morning, I opened to a text of Scripture intentionally. And I read it differently than I've ever read it in my life. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And he was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. There's something about that experience. We live in a lit up culture. There's a powerful metaphor in scripture of light and it was for people that did not know electricity and they had a deep appreciation for light, far deeper than we do until for me, it was in a situation where I was in pitch black surrounded by all of these stuff that I didn't know and I yearned for light. I wanted light. I needed light. It wasn't a nicety. It was a necessity. And Jesus comes in one of the powerful metaphors that he uses is referring to himself as light, which is why John introduced him that way. It, uh, it, in him was life. That life was the light of all mankind. John eight twelve. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, we've got this notion that Jesus is referring to himself as light. John says, uh, in his introduction, one of the famous uh, prologues in all of Scripture, he refers to Jesus as light, but he describes what that light looks like, and that light is his life. And that's what Jesus is saying. You have the light of life. John said, in him was life, and that life is the light of all mankind. And so there's something about that word life that you, you and I need to pay attention to, not for our Sunday mornings only, but for our Monday mornings, our Thursday afternoons. Through John's gospel, and we're going to spend a lot of time in John's gospel this week, his gospel and his three epistles, first, second, and third John. And many of you know about John the oldest apostle, the only apostle that wasn't martyred as far as we know. He was persecuted, exiled to Patmos, so he wrote his gospel, his three epistles, and the Revelation. But in his gospel and his three epistles, he uses the word that's translated in English life about 71 times. Only about 15 is he referring to heart beating, lung breathing. It's two Greek words, psyche and bios, that he's using for that. The rest of the time, he's using a word, zoe. And if I'm going to grasp the gospel, if I'm going to live the gospel, I've got to grasp this word. And it's not just a word, it's a concept. So whatever he is referring to there about what life is, it has everything to do with Zoe. And so when Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. It's a direct reference to Satan, to the enemy, to the serpent in the garden that came and undermined the guidance and the instruction of God and lied to the man and woman about what would be fulfilling to them. And since then, we've all eaten that lie, hook, line, and sinker, saying we can be normal men and women, fulfilled men and women, uh, men and women that are touched with what it means to be a human being, but we don't need God for that. And God said in that moment, if you disobey me, you shall surely die. Satan came along and said, 
God's lying. You shall not surely die. Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled. By the way, you and I know this well. We all have PhDs in it. When Adam and Eve rebelled, they died. Oh, their hearts kept beating and their lungs kept breathing. But darkness came because they died. So still images of God, still Imago Dei, still capable of laughter and creativity and ingenuity and relationships and love, but it's all cloaked with a death sentence. It's muted. And it's something that creates a cavern of longing in us that we, we don't have. And we'll spend some time unpacking that during the week. But John came to the great conclusion about Jesus. He says, in him... Whoever, does, whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What's the significance of Jesus? What's the significance of the gospel? What's it mean for me to embrace the gospel? I spent a lot of time on this verse. I've parsed it, uh, exegeted it, looked at the Greek. I, I've come up with what that verse means. You know what this verse means? It means whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. One of my spiritual gifts is clarifying the obvious, so you're going to need to get used to that uh, over the course of the week. But what John is doing is making, you can divide and parse up humanity, your friends, your neighborhood, the work associates, every human being you and I have ever encountered is in one of two categories. We're either alive or dead. And those who have the gospel, those who have Jesus, have been made alive, but do we understand the full implications of that? So, to get us going this week, I want to look at a statement that's really familiar, almost too familiar to most of us. Majority of us here, I think, have been in church for a while. Some of you have, and you're not yet a follower of Christ. Maybe nobody knows that you're not a follower of Christ because you've, you've played it out well. I want you to know I'm glad you're here. Others of us, we've been in, in church for a while, and it's, there's a staleness. There's a, uh, almost a, an irrelevance, a compartmentalization. All these different things come out. Let's gather together underneath the umbrella of the gospel and unpack what Jesus says. Now, I'm a big, a big apologetics person in the sense of love. The, the apologetics is not apologizing for Jesus, but defending the faith and understanding the veracity, the historicity, the cogency of the gospel and of who Jesus is. And so in apologetics world, you spend a lot of time on this verse, but what part of the verse do we spend time on? The second part, no one comes to the Father but by me. It is what our mandate is, is to understand, even in a culture that, that values, quote, inclusion, which is really not accurate, but that's another story for another time. In the relativism of this day, that we've got to understand that. We've got to understand the uniqueness of Jesus, that he is making the claim himself. He alone is the pathway to God. But in our focus on the second part of the verse, we miss one of the most brilliant things that Jesus ever says. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And if I'm going to understand that Jesus is a light, not just to my religiosity, but to my humanity and the way that I do my relationships and my career and my creativity and my recreation, the way do I do my aloneness, the way I do my community, the way that I, 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 I do my thought, the way that I process, all of that comes underneath the umbrella of needing to understand 
what his life is. And this verse highlights something that may be not true for you, but has been true for me for a lot of my life, is that I've, I've truncated the gospel. I've, I've emphasized some things at the expense of others. Now, let's say we've got gospel. Greek word evangelion means the good news. What's the good news? Jesus is saying there are three parts to it. So right back here, we've got three legs. Which one is more important than the other? You say, well, they're all important. Yes. But incredibly, the way that often in evangelical circles that we approach this text is what we say two are important, more important than the third. And what are the two? Often, it's way and truth. And at the expense of life. So if I'm going to grasp the gospel and really enter into it, it's not going to just be, they were teaching me how to do this before, I don't know if I'll be able to get to it. It's not going to be just one. So that was part of the illustration that we wanted to use here. I didn't know that was a part, so Swish, could you uh, take care of the sound, please? I'm just kidding. Um, for me to grasp... Swish, you tighten the, the uh, ketchup bottles amazingly. I can't even get this one open. Um, okay, that was a great illustration for a while. Uh, oh, there you come. You're coming to rescue me. Hey, could you take care of the sound while you come up? No, come on. Otherwise, I'm going to be tripping on this, and I've got another hour and a half to go in this. Uh, so. Let's see what I can do. So. Do you need any electric? I feel so much better. That's awesome. No, that's fine. You're, you're good. Okay. Perfect. You know, you think through uh, a, a, a prop ahead of time, and it makes a, a total sense, and it works flawlessly. Okay. Uh, we are, we are. No, you go ahead. I'm just going to have a seat back here. And, uh, hey, Swish, have you ever been uncomfortable in front of a bunch of people before? Yes. Awesome. There we go. All right, give Swish a hand. Thank you. Awesome. So, so what we want to do is we want to lower the, each of these by three inches. So, can you come back up here? I want to... I'm actually grateful for that because so often we're, we don't grapple with all three of these. We only grapple with one or with two. 
and I just cut my thumb. This is awesome. How much was that offering uh, earlier? <laughs> and let me, I'll talk to your attorneys a little bit later. And Just kidding. Life, and we'll be unpacking this all week, has got to accompany way and truth if I'm going to understand the gospel. So often we lose sight of the preciousness and the power of what, what is happening here. Uh, a woman named Ellen, and I think her last name is Thomas, I don't remember, but she had a little boy, seven years old. They're driving along. She's taking her back from soccer practice and running some errands and so forth. He's sitting in the back. And out of the blue, he says, Mom, what's the highest number you've ever counted to? I, I, I don't know what his name was, Tim or whatever. I, I, Tim, I, I, I don't know. What's the next question, though? What's the highest number you've ever counted to? He didn't hesitate. He said 3,274. <laughs> she said, buddy, that's awesome. What's the next question? Why did you stop at 3,274? And so she asked him that. He didn't hesitate again. He didn't even look up. He said, church was over. And there's a dangerous thing that starts happening when we go through the motions and we don't have an understanding of the gospel. It's just, hey, I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to kind of go through the motions here and say, all right, Jesus, I'll go ahead and adopt kind of what I'm supposed to do. Why do we go to church? What is church known for? Ideology? Yep. Was Jesus brilliant in his ideology? That's, that's a big word, for, for, but was, was he brilliant in his ideology? It's not, a, it's not a trick preacher question. Just go ahead. Yes? No? Yes, of course. How about morality? Was Jesus about morality? Of course. He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth. And so often, these two are the ones that we gravitate towards. It's, it's something that we say, okay, I can apply my will to it. I can apply my, my mind to it. And oftentimes, if I want to be involved in a church, I have to agree with the doctrinal statement, appropriately so, nothing wrong, and start behaving like the people around me. Yes, but that is truncated. Jesus says, it's not just about truth. There are a lot of truth churches out there, big time on doctrine, teaching. Let's make sure we got all our T's crossed, I's dotted, nothing wrong with that. Absolutely necessary. But there's more than just truth. Swish? Just kidding. Uh, there's more than just one of these. There are others that are way churches. They're big on maybe it's uh, service projects. Maybe it's it's behavior and, and rules and doing some of the right stuff. Yes. But if it's just way and truth, William Williman of Duke Divinity School, he said, and I, I noticed this during the, I don't know where they were, but they were dancing. And I think it was somewhere in Africa. 
They, they get the gospel. William, and he says, you and I can give thanks that the locus of Christian thinking appears to be shifting from North America and Northern Europe where people write rules to places like Africa and Latin America where people still know how to dance. Do we know how to dance to the symphony of the gospel? Do we know how to engage with way, truth, and also life? Not just doing, not just thinking, but being human fully to the glory of God, engaging our, our wills, our minds, our hearts. She said, you want to love the Lord your God? Do it with all that you are. Don't just punch the ticket, kind of go through your life and your journey and your religiosity and just stay there. So if you and I are going to engage, and I want to, we'll unpack some of this a bit later. If we're going to understand the gospel, we've got to experience the gospel. To experience the gospel, we will then model the gospel. And it's all of the above enabling us to glorify him by embracing the gospel and who we are. I'll spend some time on this verse this week, and I'm going to close almost with this, and then we'll wrap this up and tee it up for tomorrow morning. I realize some of you can't be here tomorrow morning, maybe tomorrow night. But John says, here's why I wrote my gospel. This is at the end of his gospel. If you know John, it's got 21 chapters, an epilogue in chapter 21. In chapter 20, he says, these things are written. I've written, the, I've, I've selected the things that I've selected about Jesus, I've, I've done so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He says, I've written it for two reasons, not one. Part A these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, but also part B, that by believing you may have life in his name. I spoke about this at a Christian conference a while back. I went to the luncheon afterwards. It's on a convention center thing, and I sat down at a table. There were about six other, seven other people there. Five or so of them were Christian school administrators. We've been talking about this, what I'll be looking at this week with you. We started talking about part A and part B. Part A, orthodoxy, right belief, making sure I've got everything taken care of theologically, I'm there. But part B is vibrancy. And I said, hey, I just took a flyer. Of your faculty at your Christian school, how many of your faculty would you be confident in spending 30 minutes with a junior in high school? I picked junior in high school because the hogwash meter is starting to be getting developed as a junior in high school. You start thinking for yourself, start not just accepting everything. I said, how many of your Christian faculty would you be confident in spending 30 minutes with a junior in high school talking about part A? How to believe in Jesus Messiah. What, what do you think their answer was? Hmm? All of them. They wouldn't have a job at a Christian school without being able to spend 30 minutes with a junior in high school talking about part A. I said, how about part B? How many of your faculty would you be confident in spending 30 minutes with a junior in high school talking about what his life and his name look like? Monday mornings, Thursday afternoons, in college, in boardrooms, in service projects, at funerals. What does life and his name look like? The hemmed and hawed. And I said, that's part of the crisis right now in the church. 
We've got a generation of young men and women that are yearning for vibrancy, yet we spend so much time concerned that they're not orthodox enough. They don't care about orthodoxy. And those of you, I know uh, the uh, high tide, right? High tiders? High tiders, raise your hand. Okay, you guys are, this is the only time I got you, right? Because you're going to be out and about having a blast. I want to come with you the rest of the week. But here's the deal. You guys, we love you. We are for you. And you keep calling us to account. And one of the messages, I just spoke on Tuesday night at Summit Ministries in Colorado to a bunch of high schoolers and, 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 and college students. And we're talking about this very thing. This is what we want you to hold us accountable for. Tell us we will listen to your orthodoxy when we see it lived out in terms of vibrancy. Sometimes you say it not so nicely and say, I'm not going to listen to your orthodoxy until I see your vibrancy. Let's phrase it nicely. Let's explore it deeply. Because otherwise the crisis is happening in the church between 66 and 72% of kids who grow up in churches abandon the church by the time they're 30. That statistic has been pretty consistent over the last seven or eight years. And the reason for that is our kids are hearing our orthodoxy, but they're not seeing our vibrancy. They see our way and our truth. Sometimes our way is a little weird, weird rules. I'm not referring to those. I'm talking about the biblical obedience. They hear our truth, but they don't see our life. And may Jesus enable you and me to say, we're understanding the gospel together. We're experiencing the gospel together, which we'll spend this week talking about. We're modeling it. I want to model it for you. Would you model it for me? But to proclaim it, I'm so looking forward to these sessions from around the world. But what, what are we proclaiming? John says, in him was life. Not just in him was way and truth, but life. And if I try to take way without truth and life, it ceases to be the way of Jesus. If I try to take truth without the way and the life of Jesus, it ceases to be the truth of Jesus. And if I try to take life and try to do something happy, clappy, or paste on a smile, positive mental attitude, self-actualization, that's not the gospel either. The gospel of Jesus is way, it's truth, it's life, it's me going deep into his word, me being passionate and following him, and realizing that my following of him is life giving. It's an all of life restoration to what he originally intended for us, which is why John said in him was life. And that life is the light of all mankind, not for our religiosity, but for our humanity to the glory of God. And for a revival to occur in the church in America today, it will be a revival of way and truth and life. May God help you and me to be fully alive to his glory, which is what the church father Irenaeus said, the glory of God is man fully alive. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the gift that you give us of way. But for so many of us, we focused on that. We don't like thinking much about Scripture or reading the Bible. or any, But we, we, we just give us, tell us what to do, we'll do it. Yes, there, there, there are elements of truth to that. But may, may, we, may we move from that to embracing your, your truth and your word and your life. Some of us are just about truth. We're just about Bible studies and getting it right. 
and getting our doctrine down, but may it, that, that doctrine fuel our humanity to your glory. Others of us don't want to mess with doctrine or, or obedience. We just like a, want some feel-good life thing. Well, that's not your life either. Enable us to see that all three parts of this tripod of the gospel are absolutely critical for us being your people to your glory for the life of this world. And I pray this in the name of the one who's way and truth and also life. Amen. Amen.